0: Zart and Matthew Klippenstein are back again for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, Clean Technica's weekly podcast about the hottest news and most interesting stories in the clean tech field, focused especially on electric vehicles and solar energy. Check in weekly via cleantechnica.com,
1: SoundCloud, or iTunes to get your electric fix. Hello again, everyone. Matthew Klippenstein and Nicholas Sart here back again shortly after our prior podcast with the Season 3, Episode 2 of Clean Tech Talks. How are you doing, Nicholas?
0: Hey, I'm doing great, Matthew. Thanks for asking. It's sunny and warm and not as hot as it was last week, so I'm actually... Breathing better with closed windows for once in my office, so pretty good.
1: I guess we probably shouldn't have a reference to the weather without noting uh, the severity that the Caribbean islands have had this summer with the hurricanes that have gone by, not just the number but the strength. We certainly do hope that people who are able to contribute to helping them rebuild, not just rebuilding as they are, but in a manner that is cleaner, more resilient, and ultimately safer and better for all the inhabitants there. We have our part to do, and one of the wonderful things about clean energy technology is that we can be part of the solution.
0: Yeah, we're definitely part of the solution just by talking about it, by writing about it, by bringing to the public awareness of what's going on, and there's amazing work being done, and I really like what you said, if we can help them rebuild in a sustainable and more resilient manner. Because that's one thing that that I find that's missing from most of the articles that we read. Most of it is, can you spare money? Can you give money? And that does not make me feel good, giving money away like that. What would really make me feel good is to know that that money is going into some really nice, sustainable, resilient way of rebuilding something. Of that, I would be 110% behind everything else. It's just you're tugging on my guilt feeling and that doesn't work anymore.
1: I guess not working in the development field, in the international aid, disaster relief field. I'm a low information consumer with respect to that, but if my experience with other fields in the past 10 years has been any indicator, I'm pretty confident that these factors are being considered when organizations, individuals, even agencies are thinking how best to provide assistance. A lot has changed in 10 years. So that kind of leads into our first story. Uh, Nicholas, would you like to uh, give the segue?
0: I'm so sorry. I love those stories and I know I've been called out so many times for that. It was the epic story by uh by Zachary, which I really liked. It was published on September twentieth, if you want to go and have a look at it on Clean Technica. It's a wonderful interview he got with Michael. What's his last name again? I think uh, uh, yeah. Or Libri yeah, Liebrick, is it. And Michael, I've always liked Michael, although he's he can be a little dry at times, but I've always liked him because I'm also an electric car kind of guy. I Fuel cell, it's wildly interesting and it has its place, I think, in our society. I still just don't see it happening at the personal transportation level. The first slide is definitely part of the epic part of the article. You can see the car cells and you can see uh, thousands of units and you can see the fuel cell vehicle cells in thousands of units, the chart right next to it, which of course is flat, completely flat lined. You know, that's a cheap shot, of course. You have to look at it in a much global perspective. As I think we're coming about on about our first decade of electric cars pure electric cars being driven around in a mass produced way i'm still going back to the 60s when we first heard of hydrogen and the word hydrogen you know conjures star trek line between solar systems and all that good stuff there's definitely a jetson's mystique to it unfortunately it was always stangled in front of our noses without really explaining everything that goes around it and in that sense i think that battery makers and electric car makers pure electric car makers have always been a little bit more straightforward with it by saying hey you know the range is limited yeah it's going to cost a lot but like any other technology that you buy in the beginning it costs a lot however fuel cells There have been fantastic breakthroughs as far as energy density of the actual fuel cell itself, but there's still a lot of blocks ahead. There are lots of obstacles that are not being answered. and I mean, I'm always a little torn because I think it has its place. I think in um, temporary storage, it's a great idea to use it. Thinking of offshore windmills and things like that, that would be actually a pretty good way of stocking the energy. But at the bottom of it, really, if you think about it, Hydrogen is a great source of energy, meaning you can ignite it and it blows up like crazy. I mean, see what the rockets use these days, right? But as an energy medium, it's really not one of the best things you can use. In that case, batteries are much more efficient, especially when you think about where we're going into the future, drive battery technology, solid state, and graphene, of course. Yeah, it's a, it's a cheap shot, but it's also a very good perspective from about a whole decade is... How close are we from the delivery of the hydrogen fuel cell car? I test drove the very first Clarity in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Great car, and it was nice to drive. And then I found myself refueling at a gas station, at a hydrogen gas station, and I thought, well, that's exactly what I'm trying to get away from. I'm, I'm trying to get away from going to a pump and being held hostage because this is the weekend of Lord knows what, and so all of a sudden the prices go up. Plus, the price of hydrogen is not that much cheaper than gasoline, so. All those things kind of like like dampen my my enthusiasm early on with fuel cells. What do you think about all that stuff?
1: Sure. As listeners probably know, I do come from the fuel cell sector. I spent about 15 years in it, largely not on fuel cell vehicles. Within the fuel cell ranks, I was probably the least optimistic on passenger cars. I thought there were other areas with a much greater interest. I also met my wife through a fuel cell intern. My (laughs) my marriage bliss is dependent on fuel cells, so of course, I can't be as ruthlessly objective as some people can. I don't know if I'd call it a cheap shot, the screenshot you're referring to, which we will, of course, refer to in the show notes. It's from Colin McCarriker. Shows the electric vehicle sales worldwide being in the 200,000-ish unit range each quarter and fuel cell vehicle sales in the low single-digit thousands, if that much. It's very true and it's a wonderful thing that battery electric vehicles have commercialized. One thing that's worth remembering is that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when fuel cells had their peak of hype and excitement. At that time, uh, lithium-ion batteries were only maybe five years old. They were invented in the early 90s. Fuel cells had their peak bubble around the internet bubble around the year 2000. At the time, certainly for a car company to be looking at lithium-ion batteries as a way of powering a car, they'd be like, wow, they're so expensive now and we'd have to make a supercar in order to get the range that people want. Are there going to be charging stations? Are customers going to be willing to charge a vehicle slowly as opposed to in a few minutes? Over time time, electric cars have solved many of those issues. We have faster chargers now. We have legislation which helps people put chargers in at their houses. And of course, the battery costs have come way down. So I agree with you that passenger cars would be a very difficult nut for uh, fuel cell vehicles to crack. I guess the one thing which uh, gives me the most concern is that in the States, the proportion of hybrid plus electric vehicles of the market uh, hasn't changed all that much over the last several years. So it looks like all the hybrid buyers are converting to electric vehicles. I'm a little bit worried as to whether the other 90 odd percent of American vehicle buyers will come to the realization that we have as plug-in electric vehicle early adopters that, hey, these are great vehicles, it's always a concern about assuming what the consumer will change their behavior to. There was a picture before um, Hurricane Harvey which showed that the shelves at a grocery store were empty except for the tofu imitation meat. <laughs> the point being that you know, even in a disaster, people were not going to buy this stuff. Electric vehicles are wonderful. They're excellent, superb in a number of ways. It just remains to be seen whether we can pass that early adopter Group In Norway, as some other countries, it's a little bit of a different situation because electric vehicles are, thanks to government support, cheaper than the internal combustion alternatives. That kind of support isn't available in every country. You have to have ZEV mandates, which are wonderful. That's just some of the context that I put around it. Certainly with the fuel cell vehicles, I'd estimate you might get a half a million sales in the year 2025 for fuel cell vehicles. That seems about the right number to expect. I think for consumers who want that immediate fill up, then they will come in as a supporting cast, but electric vehicles or plug-in hybrid, they deserve the spotlight. It's well-deserved. It's well worthwhile. Let's see how far they can go. One last bit, Mercedes Benz's new fuel cell GLC vehicle, that's actually a plug-in fuel cell vehicle. So you get your first maybe 40 kilometers on the European cycle off of a battery, and instead of filling up with gasoline, you fill up a fuel cell with hydrogen. That might offer a way to get those plug-in hybrid folks into a fully zero emission vehicle, and that's long-term. We have a lot of stuff to worry about in the short term anyway. So even though I come from fuel cells, I am absolutely delighted at the electric vehicle success. It kind of might be nice if Elon Musk could tone down his rhetoric a little bit, but I can understand that if you're enthusiastic about something, you should sing while you're winning. It's wonderful to see um, battery electric vehicle success.
0: Yeah, I had an epiphany while you were talking about this is that I'm definitely for hydrogen. I'm very reserved with fuel cell technology for moving personal vehicles. I remember seeing a beautiful one of those muscle cars out in Napa Valley with a big V8 engine and it had hydrogen tank basically. And you could Put more or less hydrogen in the, the engine, which would, of course, boost performance. But also, if you really put it at its maximum, there was nothing that came out of that tailpipe that was noxious. In other words, It raised the heat so much that it would burn out all the hydrocarbons from the petroleum in it. And I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense right there. Or putting it into a a turbine and, like you said, having a plug-in hybrid in that case, I think that makes, to me, perfect sense because I more or less know I can work on a turbine. Push comes to shove. I know how to rebuild an engine. Push comes to shove. I know how to build an electric motor. Push comes to shove. Same thing with a battery. Fuel cell? uh Uh-uh. I can't, don't have the technology, the tools, or the knowledge. And I think that's something that I would rather see being used for other things like hospitals and things like that.
1: We don't want to focus completely on (laughs) this absolutely (laughs) very worthwhile 139 slide drop the mic epic presentation. Epic, as Zachary mentioned. One other thing to note that really comes through on this is that the IEA, International Energy Agency, really is lowballing its estimates. It's like they're applying linear extrapolations to a gently exponential curve. Slide 56, BNEF shows that the IEA estimates that solar and wind will be 16%, 1.6% of electricity worldwide, Oof. which is crazy low. Yeah, BNEF is estimating it at 34%, which I also think is actually quite low, but is yeah. at least a little bit more reflective of where I suspect we're going to be. This plays to the fact that a lot of the assumptions about public policy, how we spend government money, even private sector money, come from these well-respected organizations such as IEA, even though their track record is horrible. I mean, you might as well rely on a stock-picking economist if you want to have (laughs) future estimates or projections that bad. But it is something that we do have to live with at least until we're able to help them reform their projection methods to be a bit more in line with reality.
0: You know, I, I, all in all, I hope they don't miss the train, right? Hint, hint, nudge, nudge.
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting <laughs> comment there. Uh, yes, so uh, our second story is about the fact that India's first bullet train project is going forward. It is going to be built through a Japanese consortium of companies, There were Chinese and Japanese bidders, and it looks like China and Japan are competing worldwide for the opportunity to build a different country's high-speed rail systems. The case of India, I would imagine they chose Japan because China is something of an arch rival geopolitically, geographically. So it would be for for India to choose China to build their high-speed rail system would be a bit like the U.S. government choosing a Russian company for their cyber counter cyber espionage kind of. (laughs) It, It just wouldn't be practical. So there are a number of things I'm really excited about, and many people are excited about with respect to high-speed rail, one of which is that in many cases it's faster and it's certainly more efficient than air travel. The lineups in terms of getting on a train, all the customs and any other safety procedures you have to go through are much lower. Train stations almost always go to downtown locations. So it's not like you have a 15-minute cab ride to the airport, wait for an hour or more at the airport to go through clearances, you fly for 90 minutes, and then you have to take another 15 or half-hour taxi ride after that. You can basically go from downtown City A to downtown City B. And then there's also the efficiency fact that you're not lifting hundreds of tons of goods into the air. So it's, it's a wonderful thing, a great development. I know there are a lot of people who are fans of the Hyperloop concept, but my Hyperloop skepticism is probably similar to many people's skepticism about fuel cells. (laughs) Just to reflect (laughs) on what you were saying there earlier, Nicholas, is that I think Hyperloops probably have a place. They're not commercial yet. You have to get some demos out. You have to build the first one. Not sure how much it's going to cost. All sorts of these questions. Whereas high-speed rail can be built and is being built in huge amounts now something like 29 of China's 31 regions are now connected through high-speed railways, which is terrific. I had a conversation recently with a person in China. They noted in the corporate information package that it would cost me $9 to go on a high-speed bullet train from the corporate headquarters to Beijing. 150 kilometers. (laughs) That's not quite flight range, really. You know, flights generally are a little bit further, 100 miles or more. But still, that's insane. It's a wonderful solution. It's electrified because all these things use catenary wires. I am absolutely delighted that India which is now competing with China for world's most populous country, has the opportunity to build a huge network of high-speed rail because that will curb demand for fossil fuels for air travel and for personal vehicles as well. Because why would you bother fighting the traffic or going through all the rigmarole of of taking a flight if you can just hop on a train which has full Wi-Fi, deluxe seats, probably refreshments? It's a fantastic solution. They're just so inherently awesome
0: my european roots are definitely going to show here you know the most efficient way of moving anything right now is actually metal on metal and rail not the starting not the the or anything like that but once a train gets going it is the most efficient way of moving anything around i was very excited to read about that because a i took trains in india and let me tell you it is a very interesting experience They're indeed aging infrastructure, extremely slow, huge accidents. The one thing that got me me to ask a few questions here is nobody talks about the gauge system that they will use. So a little bit of history here is the first two countries that really went at it with high-speed trains were, of course, Japan with their Shinkansen, which, by the way, also I live in Japan, so I, I know them well. And France, where I'm from, obviously, were the TGV. Um, train
1: grand vitesse, I believe. Train at grand vitesse, uh, exactly. Oh, yes.
0: yeah. yep, train at high speed, yeah. The one thing that they did well is they took a few lessons from the Shinkansen that they didn't want to reproduce locally, and that is to use a standard gauge. So if you know anything about the gauges all over the world is they vary trains from, here's a good example, trains that go from Poland to Spain have to change three times. They have to, you know, have their cars lifted up, change the bogies, and then go from Poland to Europe where we have a standardized gauge. And then once again, in between France and Spain, they lift it up and then they use another gauge system, a wider gauge system, which is actually much closer to the ones that we have in the U.S. and Canada.
1: So, so if I could just interrupt you there for one moment, Nicholas, are you saying that Europe invented the axle swapping station, much like Elon Musk's battery swapping ambitions?
0: I had never thought of it this way, but I'm not sure who started it, who invented it. But as far as I'm concerned, yeah, that's probably the first place it had to happen because after World War One, basically everybody understood how important trains were and really worked together to make sure that trains could go all over the place. Spain was not in a position to do that. And of course, Poland was obviously not in a place to do that. So there are different gauges everywhere. The only train you can take through and through that doesn't change gauges, I think the Trans-Siberian. But back to this story here, what worries me is that Japan's Shinkansen does use its own track and its own gauge system. You know, the regular trains run on a much narrower gauge and the Shinkansen's run on their own. In a country like japan where it's fairly a small country i don't know if you know but 75 percent of the inhabitants are on the coast not in the middle of the country where you have mountains more or less so it made sense to actually dedicate tracks just for that but in europe it was impractical because we're talking about doubling the infrastructure going into train stations right so this is a lot of added money now i've been to india i've taken their trains the one last thing I would ever want to see is that same system over there because that is going to cost them an arm and a leg. So I hope they adopt that same idea that, by the way, the Chinese did, which they did very well from the get-go, is they make their trains, I believe, run on the same gauges as their, but they also have different tracks. But at least their high-speed trains can go on regular tra- gauges. That's the important key, and that's the one thing that I'm not seeing here. Here. But I do hope that that's what they will do because definitely India needs much better transportation system. And, and good point. I, I was laughing because the whole time I was thinking they could have gone with the, the Chinese system, which, you know, the Chinese only basically took a lot from Bombardier, you know, in Canada. Yep. took a lot from Alstom, from Siemens, from Mitsubishi, and ah, I'm forgetting the other big player with the Shinkansen. But they did what the Chinese do really well. They took the technology and they said, all right, now let's make it even better. And so they've done an excellent job. And their trains are actually fantastic. And in many ways, I'm probably going to make some enemies here, but I think they, it would have been a better choice choosing their systems. Mm-hmm. Not that the Japanese don't do good, great Shinkansen. Of course they do. But I think it might have been a better case for them if they decide to not use uh, the same gauge that they use
1: everywhere else. So that was my point. Right. The part that Japan is highly densely populated is it's a very valid point. Japan's so- population is just crowded into a few percent of landmass, which is largely mountains and... And yeah, it's other highly forested areas.
0: It's I mean, Japan is, is, is a very mountainous country. And, and you'll, you'll notice I mean, it really is I think 75% of the population lives near cities along the coast and everything, which makes for beautiful walks, by the way out there when especially when the foliage turns right around this time of the year.
1: Right. And one consequence of that is that if you want to have a hydrogen fueling infrastructure, you don't actually have to blanket the entire country. So I would bet that when Toyota's engineers and planners were thinking about hydrogen, one of the things they thought about was, hey, look, all of our population is in maybe 20% of the country. We could have a network of 50 stations or 100 stations, which covers more than half the population. Yeah, Tokyo is so big. It goes between the, the major cities. And so in densely populated areas, you do have this possibility where your hydrogen infrastructure, acknowledging the limits of the technology and how it's less efficient than electric vehicles, you can have the infrastructure be much less expensive than wiring up every house and or expanding the grid substantially, I think. It's possibly Denmark or the Netherlands is covered by a network of something like 10 stations, simply because it's a pretty small country.
0: Right? Yeah, if, if I may interrupt here, you, you nailed it on the head. The, the reason why Japanese car companies are so insistent on fuel cell technology is because the government actually mandated that, not the other way around. Especially after uh, Fukushima, they, they really decided, hey, you know, we really got to do something else. And, and you're right, since it is, everybody is more or less gathered along cities it is much easier to make hydrogen and to provide energy this way. Although I still think that electricity makes as much sense, but that's a different point. But it was really mandated by the government, and that's why even Toyota was that insistent up until a few about a year ago. So when now they're starting to warm up to pure electric cars. But and there are, by the way, hydrogen fuel cell uh, train experiments going on right now too, because that also makes a lot of sense there.
1: Yes, the heavier transport, anything which you need to have. Moving 24-7, I think, does tend to play to a fuel cell or a hybrid plug-in battery plus fuel cell system, whereas certainly anything where you only have a day shift or, as is the case with passenger vehicles, it's hard to beat a pure battery electric vehicle's advantage unless you have road trips and you're worried about charging overnight or something of that sort. Uh, But yes, it's a wonderfully positive thing here that we have yet another country being able to build out high-speed rail I look forward to the time when, whenever it is that we're able to take a European vacation, that we do all of our travel by train. And because it is more efficient, it's electrified to boot, and with the growing proportion of renewable energy, then it's win-win-win. Do
0: we still have time to add something very quickly on trains? Absolutely. Sure. Oh, okay, good. Because another thing I just realized too is, Electric trains and, like you said, using a pantograph and catenaries, which is you know those big antennas that touch those big electric wires on top of trains. Another great thing that they use is going downhill. They don't break. Obviously, they use regenerative braking, and so there are, in Europe there are lots of substations here and there, usually along the slopes. For instance, on the outslopes. slopes where the trains coming down generate enough electricity that they shunt it back into the substations, which is then used again for trains coming up. Not 100%, obviously, but but that's also another thing that works in that favor. And also I was talking to a few TGV drivers. They all told me the same thing is at the time, the trains only ran at 260 or something like that, and close to 300 at the time anyway. So they were telling me that, you know, going downhill, we do accelerate a little bit, we might top out at 310 or something like that. But going uphill, we never accelerate. So we really coast going uphill and we drop up to about 290, 280 and then on and on again like that. It's such a dead efficient use of, of electricity at high speed. And that's something that I'm looking forward to hearing more about with how the engines are going to look at this technology and use it. Well, that wraps it up for us today. We've talked about fast trains and electric vehicles and, of course, fuel cell technology. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we look forward to uh, next week where we will talk some more.
1: And uh, come on back to get your electric fix.